This is Reimagining Higher Education, your go-to podcast with remarkable education leaders sharing personal stories from their experience in and around the sector, including reflection and hope for progress in the sector. With your host, Professor Petra Wend, Professor Emerita and former Principal and Vice-Chancellor at Queen Margaret University, Chair of the University Council of the University of Hamburg, and now Studiosity Academic Advisory Board Member. Welcome. I'm speaking today to Professor Sir Anton Muscatelli, who is Principal and Vice-Chancellor of Glasgow University in Scotland. But uh, Anton is not only a Principal and Vice-Chancellor, he's also a world-renowned economist, and uh, he was knighted uh, for his services to economics and higher education in 2017. And I think you've also chaired um, masses of meetings, uh, uh, committees that, that deal with uh, economics, political issues in Scotland, in the UK, in Europe, and so on. So thank you very much for making the time, Anton, to be with me today. It's a pleasure, Petra. Nice, uh, nice to see you again, and, and nice to to talk about education and again. Yes, this is what it's about. Uh, you were asked to to bring an object along that means something to you. What what did you bring along today? Well, rather boringly, it's a book, but and it's actually one of a set of uh, two or three books that um, I've kept uh, because they explain why I got into economics. Um, this book, which I uh, I dug out of my library last night is uh, John Kenneth Galbraith's uh, The Great Crash of 1929, which uh, I bought before I started studying economics at university. Um, and actually, it was together with um, uh, one or two other penguin uh, books at the time, one on one on inflation. And uh, they kind of persuaded me to, it was these books that told me that perhaps I should be interested in economics uh, because they talk about, uh, well, in this case, it talks about obviously a really um, the prelude to the Great Depression and a really bad period of, um, of uh, economic um, uh, crisis. But uh, the other books, the, the other book, uh, which I, I, I could have brought alongside with a partner, was talking about inflation and unemployment in the 1970s. And, and of course, another period of crisis, which is why which, in a sense, explains why I got interested in economics when I when I started my undergraduate career. So, how old were you when you read this book? So I was uh, so I was seventeen at the time when I read this book, um, and uh, I I'd, I'd I'd left school uh, already. Actually, I was uh, uh, I've left school uh, probably slightly early. Uh, I'd actually intended, but I hadn't started to study economics. I'd actually started to study physics. Uh, at a uh, at university, and uh, at school, I'd always been interested in the sciences. I hadn't read anything, uh, which is why this book is significant. And in a sense, I hadn't really read well. I read a bit, uh, like most people. I was interested in, in 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 reading around, but I hadn't got into economics. I didn't really understand economics. But it was books like this one, and uh, as I said, uh, a book called Inflation by uh, Jim Trevithick, which came out uh, at a similar time, which persuaded me that actually um, I should be. Um, interested in economics, perhaps, and not as much into, in hard science. <laughs> Great. Well, economics is more social sciences as well, isn't it? Which is far more difficult, I think. Yes, and it's much more uncertain and much more fuzzy. And uh, and uh, although we as economists like to think that we use scientific methods, and we, we do, uh, and we use a lot of uh, technical um, um, 
sort of apparatus which many scientists use. Of course, we're applying it in a non-experimental way, which uh, which creates much more uh, uncertainty in, in what we say. Hmm. You earlier mentioned school. Maybe we can, because we're talking about education, if yeah. we start with school. So what, what was school like for you? Well, school was very varied for me. I, I, I mean, part of it because we moved around Europe because of my dad's um, job. He was uh, he, he worked as he was largely was a managing director of a shipping company. I, at the age of four, I actually moved to the Netherlands and um, I did all my primary education there. So I had this, uh, you know, uh, native language is Italian because that's what we spoke at home. But I then uh, went to a Dutch speaking uh, state primary school there. Uh, we then had a slightly turbulent interlude because we the plan was to move to the UK at that point, but that was exactly when there was uh, quite a lot of this economic disruption in the UK around the three-day uh, week and inflation in the in the in the 1973-74. So we actually I moved to Italy. My family decided to go to Italy, uh, and I studied there for a year in Italy. So I had the experience of being in a in a in a lower secondary school in Italy for for a year, and then I came to the UK as uh, in in sort of a secondary school there. So it was, it was an interesting it was an interesting school for me. It was uh, across three three different countries in Europe with very different cultures and, and styles. Exactly. So and that was my question. It wasn't only the languages; it's different systems, uh, different cultures. What's the different mm -hmm. expectations when it comes to, to achievement in school and what is important or not? How, how did you cope with that? Um, I think like a lot of kids, it's easier when the younger you are. I think as I, when I moved to the UK, I probably found that a bit more difficult. Although the language, obviously English was, having lived in the Netherlands, English is actually there subliminally uh, anyway. I, I, I didn't speak English when I came to the UK, but I ended up learning it pretty quickly, partly, I suspect, because as I say, in the Netherlands, you're watching television and English is there, uh, like, a lot of, like, like a lot of small European countries, uh, you actually pick up English, uh, 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 even though you don't know you're picking it up. So yeah, so uh, I suppose different systems. So I, you know, moving from a rather informal uh, educational system in the Netherlands, which was actually really, I think, very formative because it encouraged you to to, to speak um, uh, as pupils. You're in, in at least my school. It was you were encouraged to intervene to discuss even contemporary issues, and, and so very very liberating in that regard. And to, into much more formal educational system, certainly in in the UK, which was excellent in terms of the, the schooling but 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 much more you know um we're here to teach you and and so i think the balance was great uh, i think it gives you uh, the balance that uh, that you probably need to then go on to, to university so yeah uh, but as i said I, interestingly I, I got very much into science when i was in school uh, although I, I did enjoy other subjects and languages obviously but also um, laterally got much more into uh, into in, into what you might call the arts, humanities, and social sciences. I, I enjoyed English as well, and English literature, but also literature and other languages. So, so I suspect that uh, although I was veering into science, I, I already had sort of uh, an inkling that perhaps that's not where I might end up. Mm. Do you still speak Dutch? Oh gosh, my fluent. No, I, I'm not a fluent speaker anymore. I can I can still read it. Um, if you give me a Dutch newspaper, I can get I can get uh, through it reasonably well. Uh, it's one of those funny when you learn a language. I'm not a 
linguistics expert at all, a language expert. But clearly, when you learn it at a very young age, it's it's hardwired and doesn't really disappear. Um, so even though I don't really speak Dutch, uh, if you give me, you know, as I say, a, a Dutch newspaper or a Dutch book, I can I can certainly wade my way through it, which is interesting. So what what do you think about the importance of languages then? Oh, I'm a, I'm a great believer in multilingualism, to be honest, and not just because I've had this experience, but I know that all, you know, even teaching students who are multilingual because they've had experience of different countries or even within a country with minority languages, I, I, I think I think it, it's it's a great um, it's a great way to learn to think in different ways, but also clearly, as we know, it, it, it makes you culturally much more sensitive. I don't think you can really understand other cultures and, and unless you really begin to understand the language and, and other dimensions of it. So for me, uh, I think it's really important. In fact, one of the things that makes me sad around the UK, and it's not nothing to do with current politics, really, it's a trend, is that it's increasingly turned away from modern languages. Um, it doesn't matter what language it is, you know, it can be a, it could be a minority language, it could be Welsh or Gaelic or, or, or it doesn't have to be, but, but you know, modern European languages certainly, which were certainly much more commonly studied at school and now, are, you know, you're finding that universities struggle to, to, to recruit uh, as many students. I think that's a real, it's a real pity. I think multilingualism is one of the great assets you can instill in school uh, children. Mm. Yeah, you're a linguist, you might agree. You must agree <laughs> yes, no, I completely agree with you, Anton. I absolutely agree. This is also why I asked the question, because um, when I speak to British people in particular, very often uh, they don't quite see the necessity of foreign languages with the argument, you know, being um, everybody speaks English, so it's it's not necessary, but but you know what what it means speaking foreign languages means having all kinds of transferable skills and different ways of thinking and in your brain is wired in a different way. When you so comparing school systems again in Italy, like in Germany, it's it's compulsory to study a certain amount of subjects up to the equivalent of a, a level so far more than maybe in England the three subjects or the highest in Scotland are, are, are a few more than that. Uh, do you think it's it's right to specialize that early like in the UK? It's a really fascinating question Petra and I have something I've, uh, I've, I've often thought about and of course my experience of Italy was limited so I didn't have but obviously I know it's a system I know well because of my own uh, background and the fact that I interact with a lot of students who have been to high school in Italy. Um, I think there is an advantage in a broad education. I think, you know, when you see students who, you know, who were some subjects like mathematics or the national language in Italian, obviously, in, in, in Italy's case, you know, it's studied by everybody as pretty much in every school setting, I think it's, it's really quite important. I think, you know, basic skills like numeracy and literacy are, are, are key. And I do sometimes think that our systems, uh, even the more narrow English system or the slightly broader Scottish system, perhaps lose some of that uh, important breadth by forcing people to specialise. And I mean, it's partly our systems which, which you know, which try... Uh, you know, where, as you say, you do qualifications by subject as opposed to qualifications by, you know, school qualification, like a baccalaureate or, or a final school exams forces us in that direction. And I think that's a pity in many respects. Now, 
The trade-off is, of course, that our students who are educated in the UK, who come to university, have much deeper knowledge and much more specialised knowledge and find the transition to um, study subjects, certain subjects at university. And let's remember, it's only certain subjects for whom uh, hires or A-levels are prerequisites anyway, so it's not not everybody. But, you know, for those subjects, clearly it makes the transition much easier and it allows them to do perhaps go a bit deeper. I have to say, I think... I suspect that drive, which was the original drive uh, towards maintaining a narrower system is probably waning actually, because increasingly we're, we're certainly finding that when we have European students say coming to the study in the UK who haven't had that depth perhaps in, in the individual subjects, they perform just as well. And they quickly get up to speed. So I'm, I'm becoming more and more convinced that really the broader system is, is better, but it's going to be difficult to, to try and reform the UK system completely. Yep. You talked about university earlier. So what was your university experience like? Well, as I said, I had a bit of a change of heart after year one. I actually, I, I, I initially started studying physics. I actually went to Imperial College, but dropped out pretty quickly as I changed my mind as to what I wanted to study. I then went to, came up to Glasgow, because at that stage, um, you know, Imperial didn't have the option to study economics. I was determined that I wanted to do something a bit, um, you know, more like economics. And I came to Glasgow because that was, at that stage, my hometown. My parents lived there, although they retired. They retired back to Italy a couple of years after I, I, uh, uh, I moved back up, um, and uh, yeah, it was a very. I mean, I I studied at Glasgow, so I'm vice chancellor of my my sort of uh, um, alma mater, which is a very. We'll, we might come back to it. It's actually a very. It's a it's a real pleasure and it's a real privilege. Um, but uh, it was a very, a very, very good university experience. I really enjoyed obviously study economics I eventually sort of uh, took it up as a profession but uh, but uh, I really enjoyed the broad uh, the rather the, the breadth of the um, of the Scottish system which allows you to choose other subjects for instance I in year one alongside economics I was able to choose a subject and study before economic history now although it connected to economic economic and social history is a very you know, opened my eyes. I'd never studied history at school, actually, in the UK. I had specialised in sciences. And so, you know, it gives you totally different perspective. And I'm sure it's also influenced the way I think about economics as well. So, so I, again, even in that case, uh, a, a broader university four-year degree was one I really benefited from in Scotland, uh, which then allowed me to specialise quite deeply in economics, but also gave me this opportunity to do other things. And was there something in your undergraduate degree which you had wished was different to what it was? Uh, anything that could have been better? Uh, did you feel well supported? Um, um, it's difficult. I mean, it's a it was a it's a very different experience. Obviously, uh, much smaller numbers uh, in the early eighties going to universities. But I think. Well, put it. Let, let me give you a positive slant. I mean, what, what I see now in not only my own university, but across all UK universities is some fantastic um, sort of innovation and pedagogy using modern technology to teach, you know, away from the, you know, uh, chalk and talk and the, the formal lecture which much more learning in groups. I mean, that I think is fantastic. And, and that wasn't there clearly in the, in the early eighties. And I suppose I uh, look with a bit of envy at our current generations, because although there are many other pressures and I'm sure there's things that are um, 
uh, not as good now um, because of you know external economic factors perhaps but but in terms of education i think what we offer now in, uh, in higher education is just so much more uh, diverse uh, and it gives you those great experiences but but look it was a great experience and i also I, you know had an opportunity to do the usual social uh, engagement as well playing sports involved in in, in some student society so so you know, it was a great experience, but I suppose if I look back and say, oh, I wish I wish we had some of them, the sort of uh, opportunities where, you know, international um, um, international uh, travel and uh, and um, opportunities have secondments in other institutions, something which was very rare in those days at uh, the undergraduate level. Mm, I can imagine. You, you then went on to postgraduate. Yes, and, and it's a very, uh, to be honest, it's, it wasn't a very typical uh, route to postgraduate study. Um, I left actually university, like a lot of students got a job uh, in the private sector. And literally it was one of those uh, sliding door mo moments uh, a few months after I'd left where uh, I had done well in my undergraduate studies. I, I, I'd, um, I had done very well in my undergraduate studies, particularly my final exams, I got this phone call from my department here saying, my former department saying that they were about to advertise a kind of teaching assistantship uh, for one year. And would I be interested in applying? And 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 I must say, I, I, I pretty much took the decision instantly that I would apply, even though it was a, you know, I was leaving a secure graduate traineeship to move into a rather insecure one, one year job. Uh, and it was a slightly crazy notion because, of course, it, it, it wouldn't pass the muster these days in terms of the doctoral training centers and programs that we have that are very, you know, this was literally, here you are, start teaching, and here's some classes, and by the way, you'll think about doing some research, won't you? Um, now, uh, luckily for me, the, the one-year lectureship was renewed and and, and, and after a couple of years, I started getting seriously into research. I, I did think, and my colleagues, to be fair, were very supportive. I did think about actually leaving at that point and going for a formal PhD doctoral program. Actually, I applied for a couple in the US and uh, there were good connections. And I, I probably, well, in fact, I, I, I was going to get two offers and, and good schools in the US, uh, top schools. And I, you know, I do sometimes wonder another sliding door moment, what if I'd chosen to do that as opposed to simply continue my year year after year teaching assistantship, doing a PhD on the side. But, but in the end, it obviously worked out for me. You know, there's so many sliding door moments in life, aren't there? And uh, I, I'm a firm believer that uh, whatever decision you take will be the right one because you make it the right one. I think I agree, Petra. I think it's uh, I think uh, it's easy to say that, of course, uh, in, uh, in retrospect. But it, but I think that's right. I think uh, uh, there's this uh, Scottish saying, "What's for you won't go by you," um, which I suppose means exactly the same thing. It's uh, it's exactly that. I think it's you make it what you want. I, but you know, of course, you sometimes do wonder what would have been like if I'd been sitting, you know, in a class at UCLA, a doctoral class at UCLA or MIT or, or similar, and. Uh, what, what, where would I be? I would probably be somewhere else. I'd be in the States probably doing economics somewhere, um, or maybe not, who knows. 
So when you started as a teaching assistant, started with research, were, were you one of a peer of people or did you sort of have to fight very much on your own? Um, I, was, I wasn't my own in the sense that I was the only one who was there with, you know, the, there was only a couple of junior posts at that stage and uh, there weren't that many, uh, if anything, of course, that was a period of crisis in UK higher education where resources were shrinking. So if anything, numbers were going down in terms of staffing um, and there was only a couple of us, but the person, the, the other young lecturers all had PhDs and were more established. So uh, um, I was in a rather odd position uh, and, and, and I, I'll be honest, I mean, I, I mean, I, I did struggle at the beginning to, to formulate a research um, uh, reach, I think, I mean, effectively I had undergraduate, an undergraduate education. Um, now, I know that this very much still, you know, that was the British tradition, of course, in the 60s and 70s and 80s, perhaps even and then started changing that, especially in, in, in many subjects. Uh, you would simply do your undergraduate and then you were ready for research. But, but of course, you weren't because there were people, uh, you know, there was formal training programs and great master's programs in, in top institutions that would give you the tools. And I had to build those tools myself with the help of some of my colleagues. And, and my colleagues were very generous with their time. And, and that was helpful. But then, you know, I, I, I would say it probably took me until well into year two to start saying, right, this is what I want to do in terms of my research. But it then took off reasonably quickly because I actually started publishing papers before um, before I actually did finish my PhD. And, and, and so my PhD then actually was relatively easy to write in many respects because I'd already published three or four papers uh, by the time. The PhD was finished, so PhD ended up being almost a, a collection of papers plus some other things. Which, again, is, a lot of students asked me uh, when I was there supervising, you know, undergraduate level, can you give me some advice from your own career on how to do, how to enter academia? I said, for goodness sake, don't follow my career. It's, it's a really, really bad example of how you to go into postgraduate study and then and then and then do it. I mean, it's it's very typical now, and I wouldn't I wouldn't I wouldn't advise anybody to follow. Well, I don't think you could. I don't think it would happen these things. So you you moved uh, from being an educator to eventually becoming a leader, vice chancellor, principal, and so on. But um, if we uh, start uh, or stay with educator, so what has been important to you as an educator? It's a really good question, Petra, and I often reflect because actually uh, it's uh, I mean the, the education side, the teaching side is one thing I was really I really liked from day one actually. Uh, I, I think what, okay, some, some of this is a bit trite, but I think it's, it's uh, I, I think it still applies. I think it's, I think it's the ability to, you know, um, when teaching it, you're teaching your discipline to see that kind of bond, which forms between you and a, and a, and a student when you convey some key concepts and then you hear, hear them, you know, coming back to you and, and you feel that that connection, that communication is there. And, and you feel it makes a difference. I mean, one of the, and I have to be honest, I mean, one of the things I most enjoy now still, is, and I've had that experience even last week, you meet people who were your undergraduate students, perhaps you were, you know, in your tutorial group and you were doing, you know, covering topics that are close to my own interest. And they say they, they really enjoyed it and they're using it, you know, they're using it. I mean, so of course they're working in the private sector and banking or finance, or they were working in, but they're still using some of these thoughts and concepts. So you feel as if you've 
communicated and imparted skills that are genuinely useful to them. Um, not, of course, it's important for it to be useful for its own sake, but they are genuinely valued the education they got. So for me, as an educator, it's that service part, that the ability that you know you, that that gift you're given to to be able to convey those those skills and those that knowledge, and then for that to be seen in action. I think it's is really great. Um, Beyond that, I think you know, seeing seeing ways. I mean, I got great pleasure. I actually managed to write a textbook very early in my career, which again is something you should never do, apparently. Um, but I was involved by a couple of colleagues to write a textbook when I was 26, 25, 26, which is really not a very good thing. As I say, normally you would do that later. But again, it, I got real pleasure in trying to basically synthesize knowledge in a way that you can then convey hopefully in a more uh, in, in a more manageable way for a reader that's not a specialized a specialist reader. And I really enjoy that. Um, I really, really enjoy that. And in fact, had, had I stayed, uh, had I not gone into management or administration, I suspect I would have spent quite a bit of time doing things like that, writing materials or, 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 or books, textbooks for, because I, 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 it's, it's something I really, really enjoy. And, and were there other events or opportunities that you took advantage of and that they were then funda fundamental to the ideas uh, you enacted upon? Yeah, I, again, I was again, I was given a lot of lot of opportunities. I think the, the, the big in terms of research, the biggest opportunity that was given is that uh, that stage in the mid 80s, uh, a new head of department took over, uh, who took one of the, the sort of major chairs in the, in the department who basically had great international connections. So the opportunity I was given there through, uh, through our, you know, through that leadership that was and very enlightened and trying to encourage us to, to, to do the sort of things we discuss these days about the importance of international connectivity and in research for early career academics, I was given those opportunities, you know, I was able to go and co-present and co-author papers and co-present them at top international conferences with, and, and that was really, really energizing. I suspect it's probably what kept me in the sector, if I must confess, mm -hmm. because I think it was mm -hmm. the, that you were, you know, making a contribution. And, and that's the kind of mentoring, again, which is so important from those who are in professorial leading position. I mean, I learned that pretty early that you really, you know, that that is an important, important uh, role that professors play, particularly in academic disciplines. So that's yeah. a key moment on that front. And then there's other kind of key moments that push me into management uh, as well. Well, you know, you're in management, you're vice chancellor and principal. So what, what uh, is important to you as a vice chancellor and principal? It's a very wide question. You probably can talk for an hour now, but... <laughs> yeah. Well, I use I like to use the I know some people use various analogies. Some people use the the orchestra director analogy. I I, I like football like you, uh, Petra. So I use the football manager analogy. Um, you you clearly you know uh, you you step back from frontline uh, academia and your own interests, and, and that is frustrating in many respect. But I think the one thing I really enjoy is 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 seeing the success of. Uh, of your various academic disciplines. And um, we've been fortunate in Glasgow that we've seen quite a few successes in that regard in terms of our research, um, for instance, but also many other dimensions in terms of the, 
the, the, the teaching experience and also our international connections. But but the pleasure you get is effectively like that of football manager watching people, the experts on the on the on the pitch and performing well. So so that's the bit I suppose I, I, I you know for me is is really important. It's getting huge huge pride from. Um, um, the achievements of colleagues, um, and it doesn't matter what discipline. I, I also have to say, I suppose as somebody who has been interested in the science, the arts and humanities and, and social sciences, I think it's a great privilege to be in a university where there's that breadth of disciplines because I I really enjoy, I mean, like yesterday I was shown around our, our chemistry labs by by the head of school. I, I mean, you know, another occasion you, you'll speak to colleagues in modern languages or, or, or whatever, social and political science. It's really that interaction with those who are working at the uh, at the chalk phase is so so important. Uh, if, to keep me motivated, that what I'm doing is actually helpful or useful or, or in any way. Yeah, I guess uh, also seeing students graduate, you know, that yeah. uh, also brings it all back, isn't it? What what universities are for as well. Yeah. Yeah, student graduating alumni of different generations, including ones that have left recently, and, and tell you that, as I said, it is it is useful. What 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 they got at the university was was useful to them. Um, to all these things. I mean, graduation ceremony, mm. usual powering uh, uh, events, uh, and um, yeah, no, I, I think all, all these things uh, give you give you a bit of a. a, a, a Give you a bit of a boost. I mean, obviously, as you know um, very well, I mean, these roles, the management roles are, are, are difficult because they involve making difficult decisions. I mean, uh, and, but then I suppose one thing about economics is, is that we would say it's about making choices in, in situations of constrained, um, uh, constrained resources. That's what economics is about. And um, But it's not easy because sometimes, you know, many a time you end up Having to say that you're not doing certain things, and uh, that's not mm. that's that's not what you want to do. You'd rather be able to say yes to all the wonderful ideas that come out and wonderful initiatives that come out of universities. But ultimately, we have to make choices, which is uh, the, the difficult bit of the job. So, talking about the difficult bits, what what challenges do you see in the higher education sector? So, not particularly only Glasgow University. Well, I think if I look certainly to the UK, but I suspect it's actually uh, across Europe. I mean, uh, the, we've had now two major economic crises in the period of um, of three years. First, COVID, and then um, and then uh, we, we're seeing the cost of living and inflation crisis, which is also fiscal crisis as well. Um, I think it's putting tremendous pressure on the resources. And it doesn't matter whether you're a largely publicly funded system like a continental European country or, or indeed in Scotland, which is more publicly funded than England, or whether you're looking at, at England, which puts more weight on individual contributions through the income contingent fee system, uh, fee repayment system. It doesn't matter. We're seeing the teaching unit resource eroded around universities across the UK, across Europe. All the investments that we've been able to make as, as a sector, not only in, in, in making the student experience better by giving people support, both in the academic sphere, but also elsewhere in terms of uh, the, the wider experience, also you know, important areas like mental health, particularly post-COVID. You're seeing all those investments that are going to have to 
being put under pressure. So I suppose that's the bit that I find most difficult because it's almost like a return to those 70s and 80s where where the system was under pressure and, and they won't you know that won't be easy it doesn't matter where you are i suspect even even okay the, there are one or two european countries that have, whose economies are in better shape but but across the board we're seeing a lot of pressure so that that's i think the biggest challenge um i think there are other challenges which are more positive challenges um which are to do with with the challenge to the sector to really uh, prepare our students and our graduates for what is the biggest fight ahead, which is climate change and dealing with transition to net zero, which is, you know, universities are the key to a lot of these uh, solutions, whether in the scientific innovation field or in the skills field. And, and that's more positive because there's, you know, an area where we need to step up to the plate and again, across the world in this. And I, I, I do think it's a, it's, it's a pivotal moment for, for, for us to play a role in that. So, so, you know, in different ways, challenges, some difficult ones that are more negative because it's all about making difficult choices. But the other was hopefully more, more about, right, what are we going to do as a society, you know, and what can we learn from the, from the COVID crisis where we did all pull together uh, at societal level to, to perhaps play this role in on, on the transition to net zero and, and the existential crisis of this climate change and what role do we play as institutions in that? So do you think the UK has come out of Brexit when it comes to universities? Um, has the UK come out of Brexit? Uh, how, Is it how done and dusted? <laughs> No, it's not that interested. I mean, this has had various effects, as you know. I mean, I think the UK, we are we are attracting less uh, European students than we did before, especially on the graduate level, um, because it is actually, uh, you know, it's uh, it's less attractive. It tends to be less diverse because they tend to come only from richer countries, and it's only those European students who are willing and able to pay for that higher education. So that's. That's limiting, I think. We and I think it's having a really negative impact. By the way, as an economist, uh, I know it's having a hugely negative impact on key sectors. And it's, you know, we were able to attract incredibly talented um, uh, Europeans into uh, courses that fed key sectors, whether you know it was fintech or 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 manufacturing, or and and suddenly we we. We don't have that, and of course, we course we've got our hugely talented home students. But as you know, I mean, we we have in the UK a low productivity economy. We know that the problems of low productivity that were there before Brexit, that really, you know, a part of our landscape for the last 15, 20 years, have been exacerbated by lower investment since Brexit, and probably, you know, shortage of serious shortage of skills in key areas and. And universities were the conduit for a lot of those skills uh, coming into the country with young people deciding to come here at 18 and then leaving and staying in the UK. And, you know, Scotland particularly has a has a, has a demographic challenge, has had, uh, you know, declining demography for, for many, many decades, for, for over 100 years. And and being in the EU had partly reversed that. And, and now we're seeing that challenge again. So, so yes, no, I don't think the UK has come out of Brexit. I, I think there's going to be a, a huge... Uh, national conversation if to put it positively or or let's hope it's not a national recrimination a national conversation i think in the years to come to say what what exactly do we want the relationship to be and how much have we lost by not being closer to our european neighbors mm. okay i think we have time for one or two more questions 
The one I wanted to ask you is about old and new universities, because uh, we still have that technology, at least in England, it's old and new, in Scotland is ancient and so on, and so on. or we have post-92s in England. Uh, we still talk about post-92s in England, uh, and how many years is that ago now? Is that uh, distinction something that is useful? Should it remain? I don't think age per se is very useful uh, as a as a as a as a label. Um, and in fact, I mean, I keep reminding my colleagues here. We're an ancient university. I keep reminding people how few ancient universities are still amongst the world's leading universities. So, so you should be you know very wary that age brings success uh, without any further. Uh, intervention. No, uh, look, it's it's it's. There's some competing tensions in there. On the one hand, I, I, I as I say, I don't like age as a label. I prefer, but I do. I am in favor of using labels which tell us something about what the strengths are. And so, you know, being a modern um, university that focuses a lot on vocational courses that, that are very relevant to the labour market, well, I think that's a great thing. And 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 I. You know, if I were leading a, a new university that was focusing on being a modern, uh, very connected university to um, particular key sectors, I'd say that that's a great thing to be. I, and as you know, before coming back to Glasgow, I wasn't head at Board University as Vice Chancellor for three years. That's a, a 1960s, uh, well, 1960s university with a longer tradition, of course, of technological teaching, but much more applied than uh, than what I the university in Glasgow. And, you know, that's fantastic thing. So I believe in a diverse sector, actually. <laughs> I really believe in a diverse sector. And I think um, I sometimes worry that perhaps we, you know, we, by talking about HE, simply, uh, if we drop these labels and we just talk about HE, then we run the risk of homogenizing. And, and I think this is where things like league tables homogenize too much because it creates an attempt by some universities to try and turn themselves into something they're not. And I don't think that's that's right. On the other hand, you know, I think there is a part of esteem which is really important. It doesn't matter whether you're, frankly, it doesn't matter whether you're a very um, progressive further education college or, or a university. If you're doing really useful things in education and tertiary education, um, you shouldn't be dragged, uh, you know, dragged down by a label in some way. You should you should focus on those strengths. So I, I wish there was more parity of esteem, even though in reality, of course, you're never going to you know uh, you know you're never going to have institutions in different parts of the spectrum which are the same. We're all we're all different, and I think that's that diversity is a strength. To be honest. Mm. Yeah. Thank you. Um, if you could change something for students now. What would it be? Oh gosh, um, it's a really, it's a really interesting question. Uh, I, I wish I could make the scars of COVID go away at the moment. Uh, I think, uh, but that's mm -hmm. that's too That's not a, that's not a good, that's not a good answer. Um, I think what I would love to do if I had a magic wand is I would certainly one of the things I would love to do is to really increase. Uh, and this does take resources and does take, uh, and you know, Brexit doesn't help this, is I would try to multiply many times the opportunities that students have to, uh, to, 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 to basically study across different institutions and, and have more dual degrees, have more international uh, secondments and, 
and opportunities. And I think we we are gonna we are gonna do that, and we are doing that in my own university through things like virtual um, opportunities for students to to, uh, to 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 spend time with students in other universities. But I think it's just so important, especially at this time, uh, given where the world is going and, and the challenges we face for that understanding, that transnational understanding. So that's one thing I would love to supercharge over the next uh, few years. I, I think that's one of the most important things. Great. I think I, I sneak one final question in because um, we had exciting sort of political events in Scotland yeah. and um, the resignation of the first minister. And obviously we could have a political discussion now, which wouldn't be appropriate, but um, there might be educational consequences because Nicola Sturgeon has been uh, very vocal about narrowing the attainment gap in schools. Um, the uh, widening participation commission uh, we had in Scotland, yeah. Um, yeah, having more widening participation about students from deprived backgrounds going to um, ancient mm -hmm. universities and so on. Um, do you think um, this will have consequences for the educational sector in Scotland, her resignation? I hope not, because I think, you know, in Petra, you and I were part of our widening access commission. Um, and it was really important work. And I, I'd like to think that this is really crosses the political divide. It's no longer something which needs to have debates on. I think we can, I think there's two ways in which, I think Scotland has made great strides, by the way. I think our, in, our universities have done fantastic work in, in widening access. And again, coming from very different positions uh, and, and traditions to do that. But I think there's two areas where we need to do much more work. One of them is around what we do with early years, because we know that we've done a lot with those students who already have made the choice that education and higher education or further education might be important to them. But we still lose a lot of people in, in the earlier to middle years. And you know, one of the things we've been doing, certainly in collaboration between the universities of Glasgow and Edinburgh, is to set up into university centers, which are very, I know, very present across the UK to try and work with, especially with families of, of younger kids and raise continue to raise aspirations. So I think that work is really important because I, I think we've done as much as possible to, to pull on the other side of the pipeline. I do think we need to deal with issues of, uh, of deprivation and, and, and non-engagement with education in the early years and middle years. The other area, however, where I think we do need to do with this, I still think we need better data on issues around access. Uh, you and I were, you know, suddenly made this case during the Widening Access Commission. Using postcode data only gets you so far. You know, it, it's a rough, very rough measure of deprivation. Or, or so I'd like us to think that we can go beyond that finally. And especially in this world of much better data, surely we can do better than this and, and target much more. Finally, um, social mobility. I mean, one of the things we we've kind of focused all our attention on this, and in reality. The bigger challenge is, of course, social mobility, which is what happens to students when they graduate. We bring them to university uh, from more deprived backgrounds, but do they then go on to get those jobs that will allow genuine social mobility? And the evidence is that it's still a huge difficulty, not, not only in Scotland and the UK, by the way, it's, it's, it's a big issue across Europe and especially even you know places like the US as well that have a much more arguably should have a much more sort of mobile system. So, um, yeah, so these are the areas I think we need to work on. And I hope that despite the change of leadership in, in Scotland, whoever, whichever political party leads, they will 
put an emphasis on, on widening access and on, on higher education. It's, it's so important. Yeah, let's hope so. I completely agree with you there, as you know. So that has always been sort of motivation in my life and, and my own passion as well. So it's very good to hear that you agree. And it's also very reassuring for you to say that you hope that, uh, or it's likely uh, that the agenda is, is not going to change drastically with, with new leadership. It's hoped on. And, 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 and you know, we all come, you and I and many other university leaders come from generations that were first in, in family at university. You know, I, I, you know my, my grandfather was a peasant farmer in southern Italy, you know, he was, uh, he was an immigrant to Ellis Island before, even before my, my own immediate family became uh, immigrants. So, I mean, we, we all know what it's like, how empowering education is to, to make a difference in people's lives. So I think, you know, we need to, you know, we just need to focus on, on the prize that it brings in terms of, uh, you know, social inclusion. These are really fitting final words from you, Anton. Thank you. Thank you. I think this brings us to the end. I, I think I could have chatted for, for ages with you and talked myself a bit more, but this was about you and not about me. So thank you, Anton, so much for your insight and, and for making time available to share your thoughts with us. Thank you very much. Thanks, Petra. I really enjoyed it. Thank you. Visit studiosity.com slash students first for the next Students First Symposium an open forum for faculty, staff and academics to candidly discuss and progress the issues that matter most in higher education.